You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mosaic Church Online. My name is Morgan. Welcome, especially if you're new today. Great to see you on that TV or on that internet browser somewhere. We are right in the middle of a series, as you can see, where we're taking a look at that one little two-word amazing phrase we see pop up all throughout the Christian scriptures, especially in what we call the New Testament. It's that one little two-word amazing phrase, one another. And more specifically, we're taking a look at how we fill in the blank with what comes before the one another part. In other words, we're just trying to ask and answer the question, how do we actually one another one another? Because let's just acknowledge it's really hard to get that right. We should just acknowledge it's really hard to get that right in your uh, family, with your friends, in your neighborhood, with your neighbors, and sometimes maybe even most of the time. It's hard to get the one another part right when it comes to this, the church. So I want to tell you today, if you've ever thought, if you've ever felt, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church, you're in the right place. If you've ever thought or you've ever felt, why is church so hard to navigate? Sometimes you're in the right place. If you've ever thought or felt, what's wrong with all these people? You are in the right place because, come on, Remember, despite anything and everything, or maybe even nothing that's been done to you, perhaps even against all odds, you're here. You're participating in a church, though it's online, but church today, you're in the right place, and that's not a small thing. It's actually a really big thing because as we're going to see today, the church, this thing that's full of all the one another's, that's a really big thing. Why? It's because this thing we call the church, it isn't my thing, some of you are saying amen. It's not your thing to which I'll say amen. It's not any denomination's thing or pastor's thing or priest's thing. It's Jesus' thing. And because the church is Jesus' thing, it's so important as to how we, one another, one another. Because people look, people listen, people watch. So someone you probably heard of, we're going to hear from him today, the former anti-Christian turned Jesus revolutionary, first century apostle named Paul. He's got a lot to say about Jesus' thing and how you interact with that in a letter he wrote to a church back in the first century city of Ephesus. And this letter, we call it now Ephesians, this letter is all about Jesus' thing, the church, what it is, what it's not how it can be, what it should be, and maybe even most of all, how we can one another, one another. So today I want to give you because how we do this is so important. Today I want to give you because what we're doing as Mosaic Church is so important that so many people are looking at right now. I today, I want to preach to you Just say it to yourself, he's going to preach to me. Uh, I want to preach to you in light of what Jesus is thinking the church is and what it's supposed to be. I want to preach to you today and look at three things, three keys I think can help us all do this well and one another, one another well. So how do we do that? How can we one another, one another? Well, I'm going to go through these in turn. Here we go. Number one, and you probably didn't see this one coming. I want to encourage you to become 
permanently disillusioned. That's right, become permanently disillusioned. What in the world does that mean? Let's begin in this opening paragraph of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter one, where he says this, he writes this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So what's Paul doing right off the bat in this letter that's all about what the church is supposed to be? Oh, right off the bat. You can see it. He is praising God. Paul is excited. Paul is thrilled. As a matter of fact, he is so thrilled about what the church is that he literally cannot stop talking about it. Verses 3 through 14 here, you may know this, in the Greek are actually one long, winding, gloriously complicated, hard to grasp, 202 word, explosion of joy, single sentence. It's just the thought of what the church is is can be he says we are chosen we are holy we are blameless and right about now you're saying morgan who is the we he is talking about right about now you're like i knew paul was crazy morgan in another book didn't he talk about like seeing bright light somewhere didn't paul talk about you know hearing voices did he talk about going to the third heaven whatever that is this is proof right here he was insane he's talking about how great holy blameless churches why are some of you thinking that because you know you know you hear stuff like that and your heart either flares up with anger at the thought of how someone that you love has been treated or maybe you've been treated or it sinks under the weight of all you know about the people who simply aren't that aren't holy aren't blameless in other words you're thinking Paul what you're saying simply isn't true Listen, on the one hand, that's totally understandable. Someone by the name of G.K. Chesterton, a, a great writer, Roman Catholic thinker, he wrote this, quote, By far the most powerful argument against the truth of Christianity is Christians. And yet, and yet on the other hand, God has so linked himself to his church. There's actually a name that he calls us the body of Christ. And we'll come back to that. That's here, there to let you know how inseparable Jesus and his church really are. And in fact, the early church believed that Jesus and his church were so inseparable that they put it down in what we call the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the earliest statements of faith about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And if you read it throughout, you'll notice among its many phrases, it asks you to say, to believe this phrase, to say this, that I believe in the Holy Catholic. That means universal church. I believe. In the church, like what? Believe in the church? Mm. You know, people who don't believe in God or a God are called atheists, atheists. I think some people could also be called a-churches or a-churches because they've been hurt or burned. Burned out. They don't believe in church anymore. As a result, they've become disillusioned, disillusioned. Oh, but what? What, my friends today, what is disillusionment other than the end of an illusion? And what is an illusion other than something that didn't even exist 
in the first place. So I would argue today that if you are today, you ever have been, you've showed up here and you've ever, ever been disillusioned with Christ's church, that's a good thing. And here's why. I read some words a few years ago and I personally was wrestling through a dark moment in my own life that almost knocked me out of my chair. These words were written by the German pastor, martyr. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote a book all about the church called Life Together. And he talks about how to navigate any experience in church like this. He wrote, he said, the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship. So surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. So what's he saying? He's saying become not just disillusioned, but greatly disillusioned, maybe even permanently disillusioned. Because what's the illusion? Bonhoeffer says that most of us come in with. It's the illusion that the church is a perfect place full of perfect people, full of perfect leadership, perfect music, perfect preaching, perfect children's youth ministry with a perfect mission statement and vision statement perfectly lived out. The illusion is that the church ought to be full of people that understand you completely to the core. They always sing the songs you like. You always get the messages you want. The illusion is that nothing wrong will ever happen. The illusion is that you will always be thanked and seen and noticed for everything that you do. Oh, but, Bonhoeffer says, it is the grace of God that shatters those dreams. Let me ask you, has your dream of a church ever been shattered? Maybe it's because God loves you. Are you disillusioned with church somehow, somewhere? Great. It's because God loves you. You say, how can that be? Oh, here's how. Here's what I think God is doing in the middle of all of it. God is getting you to love what he loves. What do you mean, Morgan? I mean this. It's always easier, isn't it, to love a dream than it is to love people who sometimes, to be honest, can be a nightmare. The fastest way to kill a church, any church, the church of Jesus, is by loving a dream more than the actual people themselves. Bonhoeffer goes on. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest. He's saying, do you know the, the fastest way to kill your community? Only love the dream of it, what it's supposed to be. Oh, but do you want to make a difference? He says, love the people, love one another. Now, before we move on, let me try to define what this doesn't mean. What this doesn't mean. To be permanently disillusioned, I don't believe. It doesn't mean you stay in a place where some persistent abuse is happening or obvious heresies being taught. 
But nor does it mean you get to rehash hurts over and over, fueling your bitterness like, yeah, the pastor told me I could be disillusioned. Nor does it mean you, you get to refuse now to trust anyone anymore. It doesn't mean you get to not grow close to any more Christians. It certainly doesn't mean that you don't have to obey the Bible when it comes to, when it says we have to believe the best about one another. Nor does being permanently disillusioned, on the other hand, allow a person, doesn't allow a church, doesn't allow a leader like me off the hook for something that they've done. So what does it mean? To be permanently disillusioned is to love people as they are, not how we would want them to be. See, some churches I've been a part of, maybe even a part of too, they've been amazing at casting vision for what the dream of a church ought to be and feel like, and that's a good thing. We ought to do that. We ought to dream. We ought to have vision without question. Oh, but let's be careful what we love more because after all, what is the church? If not the people, how could we love a dream more than reality? How could a husband love the dream of what his wife was supposed to be more than he just loved her? I mean, wives, women, could you imagine if a husband just loved a picture of you more than you yourself, or how could a wife look at her husband and say, I love the dream of what our marriage is supposed to be more than I actually love you. You'll kill your marriage if you do that. And for those of you who are single and you meet someone, could you imagine if someone said to you, you know, I prefer your online profile to you. I liked, you know, you over there. Could you just be that instead of you in front of me. As a matter of fact, you'll kill any relationship if you do this. You'll crush your kids if you love the idea of how they ought to perform more than you just love them with your children. Do you love them? Let me ask you. Do you love them as they are, not for how you think they ought to be? Children know when they're loved above their performance. Wives and husbands know when they're loved more than the dream of marriage, and friends know they're loved even when. Let me ask you, does Jesus know you love his church? Do you think he knows that? Does Jesus know you love his church? It's way easier to love the idea of church than it is to love the church itself. But Jesus never commands us to love vision. He does command us to love one another. Which one are you doing? Now, Maybe saying, Morgan, well, well, isn't Paul just like loving a dream here? Well, you would think that if you only read chapter 1. One of the challenges with only looking at a letter uh, a few verses at a time is that you miss the overall effect of the book or the letter, which was meant to be read and heard and experienced in its entirety. And so when you read this letter in its entirety, you'll eventually come to chapter 4, where Paul says, this same group of people, he says stuff like this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, he who steals must steal no longer. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. What does this mean? <laughs> I'll put it like this. I only tell my kids to stop fighting over Legos when they're actually fighting over Legos. The point is, Paul is only saying this because it's happening with these people. What did this, this church, these people need to do? Stop lying. Stop cursing. Stop 
grieving the Spirit of God and being bitter at one another. Whoa, what's that, Morgan? You're saying a church where people lied, cursed, stole, they're bitter, they're grieving the Spirit? Yeah, and by the time you get to the book of Revelation, this church in Ephesus was the first one rebuked by Jesus for what? Leaving its first love. Yeah, friends, this in a way, it's part of our spiritual lineage. And this is every Christian community in a way you'll ever be a part of. So if and but if you're permanently disillusioned, if you love one another, if you love the people for who they are, stop resenting them for what they're not. Now you and I, we are actually doing what Jesus commanded us to do, which is not to love a dream, a vision statement, or a website, but to love one another. So let's be permanently disillusioned. And yet, and yet, and at the same time, number two, you're saying, thank God. Number two, at the same time, be unashamedly hopeful. I told you I was going to preach to you. Paul goes on in chapter one. He says, okay, all right. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view, looking ahead, to the redemption of God's own possession, that's the people, to the praise of his glory. What's he saying? Well, it's a little complicated, but he's saying that there is, there is right now, there is an already but not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. You have, he says, the Holy Spirit right now, but it's only like, like a pledge, like a promise, like a, like a down payment of what's gonna come one day. What's he showing us? He's showing us that he knows, he's aware that the church at this exact moment isn't all it should be or will be. There's an already, but not yet. Uh, uh, some right now, but more to come aspect that he is holding in tension. So what is he going to do? How is Paul going to get us from here to there? What's he going to do in the tension of the already into the more to come? Is Paul going to say, well, because things aren't perfect yet, because I know you got a church full of thieves and liars and spirit grievers, cold-hearted Christians, you should just throw in the towel, not just socially distance, but spiritually distance yourself? No, he's going to do in the middle of the tension of the already, but not yet. He's going to do for this church what you and I, no matter who you are today, should do for your church, no matter where you're watching from today. Paul is going to stop everything in the middle of the tension and pray for his church. Look what he says. For this reason I, next words, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What's Paul praying? What's he after? He's after, above all, that we would know the hope of his calling. Now, before you let that phrase totally underwhelm you, please, please, please understand, you know this, that our word for hope in English is impossibly uh, wimpy. It's like Popeye, pre-spinach, because when we say hope, we mean something along these lines. We ask, for example, will you be there tonight? We say, I hope so, meaning like there's like a 51% chance it's going to happen. 
But Bible hope, and I love preaching this, Bible hope doesn't mean that at all. Because hope in the Bible, let me try to define it for you, is confident expectation in a victorious future. Confident expectation in a victorious future. What does that look like? Biblical hope means this. It means knowing the final score before you ever watch the game. Knowing the final score before you ever watch the game. And by the way, I can't tell you how literally you should take and live and apply that phrase. Because what happens, for example, what happens if you've recorded the UT football game? Because apparently the Big 12 is going to play this year. You recorded the UT football game and you find out that they win before you watch. How would that, how does that influence how you watch the game? Well, it changes everything, doesn't it? Because before, when you didn't know, when they fumbled on the opening kickoff, when they went down by 21 at halftime and they could never, ever get a first down, what would happen to you? Oh, you churn on the inside. You fume on the inside. You start getting grumpy. You, you get fussy. You start overeating the nachos. And you, you yell at your friend when he or she asks you a question about the game. And I said she because if there's one thing I've learned about pastoring here in Texas is that women love college football too. So we're going to be inclusive about that. But if you're not careful, if you don't know, you can even come to the point where you turn it off and give up on the whole thing altogether. And that's exactly what we do in our lives sometimes, maybe even with Jesus' thing, the church. Things aren't going well. We feel like we're losing. There's a pandemic. There's racial tension. There's some fighting between teammates on the sidelines. We should probably just turn it off and find something else to do. Why? If we feel that way, it's because we've forgotten how it all ends. But Paul says, I pray you never do that. I pray God would give you something. He says, the wisdom to be unashamedly hopeful. Why does he say wisdom? Here's why. It's because it's always smart to bet on a winner. It's always wise to bet on a winner, isn't it? And if you know what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1, that no matter how bad the world looks, God has predestined his church to triumph, that God will work all things out after the counsel of his will, and that God will one day sum up everything, bring all things together, heal all things through and in the person of Jesus, then you, in a sense, you know the final score. You know the outcome of the game, even before you play, when you play, while you play, and that's why. Martin Luther, the great reformer, in his darkest hour, when it seemed like the church and the world around him was doomed to sin and decay and abuse, he could write stuff like this. He wrote this words. He says, and though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. What did Luther know? He knew what you know now, which is Ephesians 1. And therefore, he could be unashamedly hopeful. He could have in his heart a confident expectation of a victorious future. Why? Because it's the hope, can you see, of his calling, Jesus' calling. It's not your voice or my voice calling from the phone line of heaven into the history of the present moment. No, it's his voice, his power, his calling. And you need to see that. You need to hope in that. Some of you, you may know the name, Admiral James Stockdale. Jim Stockdale, before he ever ran for vice president way back in the 90s, he was more famously known for being the highest ranking U.S. military officer ever to be imprisoned in a prisoner of war camp 
during the Vietnam War. And, and Jim Stockdale was held in what was called the Hanoi Hilton for more than eight years. He was tortured more than 20 times. And at one point, he disfigured his own face rather than being used as a part of a Vietnamese propaganda war video. And because of what he suffered, his body was never the same again. But eventually the war ended and he was released and he came home. And, and so a few years later, the author, Jim Collins, you may know the name, Jim Collins went to go interview him. And he asked Admiral Stockdale, he asked him, how did you make it out? How did you do that? Why did you make it out? After having been, despite having been through much more than even a lot of the men around you, Jim Collins asked him this. He says, Admiral Stockdale, who didn't? make it out. And the admiral said, oh, that was easy. That one's easy. He says, it was the optimists. The optimists, Colin, of course, was surprised. He says, what do you mean? And Admiral Stockdale said, the optimists are the ones who said, oh, we'll be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. Oh, we'll be out by Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving would come and Thanksgiving would go. We'll be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And he said, and they died of a broken heart. Died of a broken heart. But Stockdale said he would tell whomever would listen to him, we're not getting out by Christmas. We're not getting out by New Year's, Memorial Day. We don't know when, but one day we will get out. One day we will be free. One day we will win. And then Admiral Stockdale said something which has become known as the Stockdale Paradox, which is this. And I think it captures what I'm trying to say to you today. The Admiral said this. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. He said, confront the brutal facts without losing faith that you will prevail in the end. What was he, come on, in his darkest hour? Can you hear it? He was permanently disillusioned. He confronted the brutal facts. Oh, but he was unashamedly hopeful he would prevail in the end. And in the same way, I want to tell you, as we live through all that we're living through right now, church, I want you to know that we are unashamedly hopeful. I want you to know I am unashamedly hopeful about you and about me, the church of Jesus in the world and us for sure here at Mosaic. Why? Because we know the final score before we ever play. So then in the end, What's it going to take to make all of this happen? How can we live out all of this? Number three, let me encourage you and call you actually to remain passionately sacrificial. Remain passionately sacrificial. Paul says this to sum up the chapter on the church, verse 22 and 23. He says, and he put, Jesus, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what's Paul doing right here? <laughs> well, he's 23 verses in to describing the church, but this is the first time he ever actually uses the word church. He's 23 verses into describing us before he ever actually names us. This would be like me. This would be like me taking the hand of my wife, Carrie, looking deeply into her eyes and saying to her, I know this woman who is beautiful, loyal, trustworthy, talented, intelligent, 
a great writer, deeply spiritual, then going minute after minute describing the characteristics of this woman. And when I got to the end and I said this, and she is the love of my life and the joy of my heart, and her name is Carrie, <laughs> what would I be doing? Not only would I be getting massive points in a sermon, but I would also have built tension during my introduction by saving her name till last because I would want to make sure I put the thing I wanted her most to remember about herself closest to her name. And that's what Paul does here. And at the end of the chapter, look at it. What single phrase does he use to introduce us to who we are? He calls the church. He says, it's a body. He's saying, church, Meet yourself. You're a body. And he says, not just anybody. He uses this phrase. You're his body. You are his body. Jesus' body. No, no, no. We are so accustomed, so accustomed to thinking about this phrase in the, through the lens of the metaphor of connectivity. And we've lost the shock value of this statement. After all, if you'd have been a first century Christian and you heard that phrase, his body, what would that have meant to you? Because when Paul said this to that first century Christian, you are his body, that person's pulse, I think, would have pounded. Their heart would have beat a little faster. It would have made him or her more uneasy in their seat. Why? Well, what happened to his body? His body was crushed. His body was whipped. His body was pierced. His body was broken. His body was nailed. His body was spit on and struck. His body was cursed. His body bore sin. His body bled and suffocated under its own weight. His body bore the full weight of the just wrath of God. And yet, oh, and yet it was that body, his body, the body that died, that was rejected, that could bring us life and make us whole. It was over, can you see? A broken and bleeding body that God paid the world's ransom note. It was that body that tore the veil in the temple that allowed a human being now to be born again and to receive the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, and it was that body that saved those first Christians in that church and made them one people and saved those who follow him now today. And Paul has the audacity to turn to those Christians and say, you are that. You're his body. You're not just a metaphor of connectivity. No, no, no. You are a sign to the world. Because what does a sign do? Oh, come on. A sign gives direction to something. A sign points to something. A sign shows people where to go and what to do. And Paul says, now, we, you and I, we, the church, is the sign the world is looking at when it comes to tell them how to love one another. How do we do that? How do we love one another? Oh, by remembering and receiving his passionate sacrifice for you and for me, for my sin, for yours, by receiving and remembering, receiving and remembering his passionate sacrifice for us. And if we'll do that, if we'll do all of this, what does this all enable us to be now? What one another finally at the end sits at the intersection of being permanently disillusioned, unashamedly hopeful, and passionately sacrificial. Paul puts it like this, Ephesians 4, 32. He says, now, 
be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I'll say it to you today, church, because Paul has said it to us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Don't you think the world needs a little more kindness right now? I do. I think you need it. I think I need it. I think we need it. I think the church of Jesus needs it. And some of you, therefore, you need to let go, not, not of a dream necessarily, but just to let go something you were holding on to and just grab hold the hand of the person next to you and all their flawed imperfection. And if you'll do that, if we'll do that, if we will show kindness to one another. To those, shall we say, all those to the left of us, all those to the right of us, we can become a church through which the world sees a Savior. Let me pray for you now and ask for God's grace to help us do and live all of this. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for what you've called us to be, what you say that we are already. Lord, we ask as we remember, as we receive, and remember again your passionate sacrifice for us, you would enable us to love people, love one another, and through that to show the world a Savior. Pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.